Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. You know, since we started this show way back in 2014, there have been certain guests that have risen to the top of our want list. And we couldn't be happier that we finally landed one of them. He's an occasional writer and producer and one of the most prolific, dynamic, and admired stage and screen actors of the last half century. He's made hundreds of appearances on the big and small screen, appearing in TV shows like Frasier, Entourage, Monk, South Park, Sight, Franklin and Bash, Community, Heroes, and Mozart in the Jungle. Ah, but it's in feature films that he's made a lasting and unforgettable impression, appearing in well over 100 motion pictures, including Oh Lucky Man, If, A Clockwork Orange, Caligula, Britannia Hospital, A Voyage of the Dam, Time After Time, Get Crazy, Cat People, The Player, The Company, Star Trek Generations, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, Halloween and the Artist and Bombshell. In a long and very active career, the man has portrayed everyone from H.G. Wells to Rupert Murdoch. He's tangled with Michael Myers and Jack the Ripper, bumped off Captain Kirk and pissed off Gene Kelly. He's worked with James Mason, Stanley Kubrick, John Gielgud, Robert Altman, Lindsay Anderson, Helen Mirren, Lawrence Olivier, Blake Edwards, Anthony Quinn, Orson Welles, Christopher Lee, and Peter O'Toole. Just to name a few. He's even worked with me, Gilbert Gottfried which must have been a thrill for him. (laughs) Frank and I are excited to welcome to the show a screen icon, a gifted raconteur, and a man who says he's enjoyed just about every film he's ever made, even the crappy ones. The legendary Malcolm McDowell. Hi, hello. Well, that was quite an intro. Thank you, and you make me feel very, very old. And I have done, I have done a lot of films. You're right. Welcome, Malcolm. Thank you. <laughs> now, now, do you rem- you probably don't remember, and uh, I, uh, you probably have it blocked out of your mind. We worked together on one episode of Saturday Night Live. Oh my God. I remember. <laughs> Thank you for bringing it up. One of the worst things I ever did. And you know, Gary Oldman called me and said, They've offered me Saturday Night Live. What do you think? And I went, Stay away. They're terrible. They don't, they write the worst stuff. It's not funny. And, uh, you know, if, unless you're a stand up comedian and come with your own stuff, forget it. But um, it was sort of fun, you know. 
The only thing I remember about that was uh, playing John Lennon, uh, who was a house husband, and he was going, me cakes, me cakes, I've burnt me cakes. I think me cakes are burning and all that. And uh, that was on the Saturday. On the Monday, he was murdered. And it always made me feel really bad that, um, you know, I sort of took the piss gently out of John Lennon, who was, of course, a hero of mine, like he was to most people of of my era, you know. Mm. Uh, And um, it was, I think, 20 years later that I... They've discovered some BBC interviews that he'd done on the Sunday where he said, oh, we watched Saturday Night Live and they did a skit about us. We did laugh. Didn't we, Oko? Didn't we, Mother? Oh, well, that's a little bit of a saving grace there, Malcolm. It was. It was actually made me feel so much better. I remember one of the horrible lines in that John Lennon sketch was that uh, Yoko is uh, making hot cocoa and and your line is Yoko the Coco. <laughs> yeah, well. that, that was the level of the writing. <laughs> As I say, I didn't write it, but um, you know, look, if you agree to do it, you just go in and just hope you're not going to be thrown too much to the lions. And if you are, big deal. Who cares? It, it wasn't That's the show's the kind finest of way hour. I no, it wasn't. No, and it it was a it was a you know the cha- just change of cast. Yeah. So it was somebody called Johnny Rocket or something, and <laughs> Charles Joe Rocket, Piscopole, yeah. Charles Rocket, whatever his damn name was. Yeah. Yeah, not the restaurant guy. <laughs> uh, maybe he went on and opened some restaurants afterwards. He he made a, quite a killing. Gilbert was one of those cast members in the change. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, Gilbert, hey, so but so was Eddie Murphy, right? Yes. Correct. Yeah. That's what I keep telling myself. <laughs> well, listen, hey, you survived it. I survived it. Oh, so thank you. That's all one can say. And and I got to bring up one other sketch that in a season of horrible sketches, this may Are you still talking about this hard. show? Yes. I thought yes. we moved on. <laughs> no, I Jesus. have to mention, okay. I have to mention this sketch because... You were in this one. Is this the Jack the Stripper? Jack the Stripper. Yeah. Yeah. Where all the men were in women's clothes. Oh, that's because every Englishman has to leap into drag, as you know. (laughs) um, (laughs) I did my impersonation of Maggie Thatcher. (laughs) Winging a hammer. And in fact, the guy who I was working, doing with, it wasn't you. I think it may have been the rocket. Oh, the right. rocket. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I whacked him. I saw that he was not supposed to be in the thing, so I whacked him with the handbag and shoved him off and, and pulled another one on. I mean, it was as amateur as that. <laughs> you know, it was, it was sort of fun, though. And, you know, it was fun.
Well, madam, forgive me for saying so, but you didn't have to watch. I couldn't help it. He had a little radio and he was playing a disco version of God Save the Queen. Well, what did he look like? Well, he had a gorgeous body. Little on the thin side. Beautiful legs. Oh, yes. He had a crown on his head. Did you hear that, Snoot? A crown? Yes. It appears that our Mr. Stripper is trying to impersonate a member of the royal family. Live television. Yeah. Probably the only Is that the only time you, did, you attempted live television, Malcolm? No, I started at the BBC. Oh, there you go. Okay. And uh, we did live dramas. And my God, talk about pressure. I'll bet. And I'll, I just remember once, I was in a cop show. I was a delinquent, of course, wouldn't you know? <laughs> and they were processing me. And the sergeant took a swig of tea that went down the wrong way and shot out of his nose. And everybody started laughing in the scene, you know, and it's not <laughs> was not a jokey thing, and it was live. And I had most of the dialogue, so I was cringing, trying to get it out. Eventually, of course, it was fine. But, um, yeah, they did hire me after that, but uh, I'm very lucky they did. Malcolm, speaking of the Beatles, you, you narrated the uh, uh, now impossible to find wonderful documentary, The Complete Beatles, which I honestly think that's the best one. It's fantastic. It's I, only on VHS. Not because I'm in it, not because I did it, but um, it was an amazing piece. And um, you, uh, yeah, you, it is hard to find. It's sort of a collector's item now. Yes, it is. It's one of the best, uh, though. Uh, and it was done, you know, just after John. Uh, John's death, you know, yes. so it was 1981, I think. May have been even in 80. And, and we you, were a logical, you were a logical choice to, to narrate I guess, that. I guess so. Um, when I heard it again recently, I thought, my God, I could never do that again. There was a sort of naivety, a grittiness, a northern grittiness that I, you know, I've just come too far down the lane of the you know of the horrible word technique mm -hmm. and um to find i could never do that again so uh i'm glad i did it the once but apparently the guy who directed it told me that that narration changed the way people did narration on documentaries wow. for a time i know yeah. Well, so. you had you had seen them. I mean, growing up in Liverpool, you should point out to people yes. that you, you saw them at the Cavern Club regularly. I did. I did. I wandered in with a girlfriend of mine who said, you've got to, got to come and see this band. They're great. And it was a, a <laughs> tiny, I mean, the Cavern Club. Club. That's a joke. You went down some stairs and it was a, like a beer vault. And I don't, it, it was very small. Uh, if there were a hundred people in there, they were packed in there. Um, the only dancing was called the Liverpool Stomp, which was basically hopping from one foot to the other. You couldn't do anything with your arms, nothing. There's no room. Full of teddy boys. Yeah, yeah. and there they were yep. on a, a small platform, maybe nine inches off the floor. And uh, the one, of course, that... Um, drew my eye immediately, of course, was John Lennon, who was the leader of the group, I guess. So, 
But he was the one with the sort of force of personality um, that I remember. So they were you know, the Silver forget, Beatles. I, I, they were the Silver Beatles. How about that? And they were singing covers, old Chuck Berry and Little uh -huh. Richard, and but but brilliantly well. And, uh, you know, I went every Friday. They played Friday nights. I went every Friday for like six weeks or something. And the last time I went, uh, they had the mop tops and the cutaway collarless jackets. Brian Epstein had got hold of them. Oh, that's cool. And they'd move to another level. But um, I sort of... Um, you know, uh, Paul McCartney was going to do the music for my uh, third movie that I made called The Raging Moon, and uh, Paul saw it, but he was living in Skye on the Isle of Mull, wherever it is, and uh, he wanted to do it. He told me he wanted to do it, but, you know, family considerations and all the rest, he couldn't do it in the end. Uh, so I've always sort of felt an affinity sort of with them because... Of course. from the same city. And, of course. And, and actually, so I learned to get rid of my northern accent uh, to be an actor. And just as the Beatles hit nationally and then internationally, and everybody wanted a Liverpool accent. And I'd go in and say, yes, I actually, I am from Liverpool. They'd go, no, you're not. Where's the accent? I said, well, I can do it, but, I mean, I've got rid of it. You know, I don't want to be playing... Scousers the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, of course, uh, of course, they, uh, you know, it's very fashionable to be from Liverpool for one moment, you know. Uh, it's not so fashionable now. I would but... imagine. We had Peter, a Peter Asher was here and uh, also Billy J. Kramer was here on the oh, show. Oh, you had us. Billy J. on? Oh, he did. He's living here on Long Listen, Island. Do you want to know a secret? You bet. <laughs> Gil Gilbert <laughs> sang it with him. Did you? Good man. Yes. Yeah. Great. <laughs> I used to love him. There was the, there were three thousand groups on Merseyside. The Beatles were the second most uh, the second favorite on Merseyside in some poll by some Liverpool Echo, the local paper. Wow. And the most uh, the most successful or the most sought after was a jazz band called the Mersey Sippies. Go figure. <laughs> the Mersey Sippies. Yeah. Wow. And uh, there were 3,000 groups in on Merseyside. I thought every city was the same. You know, I thought, well, every pub you went into, there was a live band. I mean, it was just consumed with music. Great time and, to be growing um, up in Liverpool. Incredible, really. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. one didn't realize it then, but... You'd go to the gas, the gaslight, then you'd go to the pink alley, and then a cavern. You know, you'd do the rounds of the clubs, and um, they were very cheap. You know, it was nothing. I mean, nobody had any money, let's face it. You know, great days. Can, can you demonstrate your accent before you uh, fixed it? Well, Liverpool, you, you know, well, Liverpool is like that, you know, uh, just a bit like that. And you know, they talk through the nose like the adlords, you know. That's how they talk, you know. And uh, they sort of go up at the end of sentences like that, uh, which is sort of weird. But um, <laughs> I never really talk like that. 
I talk more <laughs> northern, you know. I had a sort of soft northern accent, you know. I'd sort of like that, you know, like Hindle Wakes, you know, from Yorkshire. I'm from Yorkshire. <laughs> That's how they talk there. Did, did you just lose it? a bit more, you know, a bit more, well, I don't know, a bit more energetic, like, you know. Uh, a bit of Irish, too. You know, it's the capital of Ireland. Did you know that? There's more Irish in Liverpool than there is in Dublin. Did, did you lose it on your own, Malcolm, or did you get specific training? Did you? I had the most amazing uh, speech therapist oh, called Mrs. Harold Ackley. She was 82. She was my drama teacher. Uh, I had a girlfriend, same one that took me to the cabin, took me to Mrs. Ackley. Wow. And Mrs. Ackley said, oh, she was very posh. She goes, I have been a silent screen star. And I think you have an amazing voice. And I think you can make it. And of course, that's all I wanted to hear. And I thought, well, I think I can make it too. What do we do? She goes, you learn these pieces. And then you, uh, you, you go down to Lambda and you do them for these judges. And if any of them like you, they'll offer you a job in repertory theater. That's what I did. And, you know, the weird thing is, I was at a dinner party, I don't know, 35 years ago or something, next to Rita Tushingham, and we were chatting away. And, you know, Rita, I've always been a big fan of Rita. Because, Taste of honey. You know, she'd made, she made these wonderful movies before mine, you know, um, uh, Taste of Honey, yeah, so Sheila Delaney. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. And uh, she was, a, you know, a plain girl, you know, that, that's the way they made her look anyway. She was actually quite beautiful, but in person. But And 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 we were talking, and I went, yeah, well, you know, Mrs. Harold Ackley. She went, you went too. <laughs> went, Good God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you went to Mrs. Ackley. So, hey. And then, I, and then a producer that I work with on a movie called Gangsters the Number One, uh, Norma Heyman, she is also from Liverpool and went to Mrs. Harold Ackley. I love it. Yeah. She had and quite Norma's an influence. son, he produced um, the Harry Potter movies. So there you go. Keeping it in and, the family. And now, yep. now I've shown enough self-restraint. Uh, but I have to know, because I've heard this story before, and I have to hear it from you about Danny Kaye and Lawrence Olivier. Oh, you're going right for it, huh, Gil? Yes. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> you know, I got into a lot of trouble uh, repeating this, but apparently it is true. I don't know. I didn't hear it. I didn't hear it from Larry himself, of course. <laughs> but you know, it was said, and I don't know whether it's true. So we'll have to just say that right off the bat. <laughs> Allegedly, that when. When Olivier was in Hollywood, he had some, you know, fun with Danny Kaye. They were great friends. And make whatever you want out of that. So <laughs> when Danny was coming to London to the Royal Variety Show to play before Her Majesty the Queen at the London Palladium, uh, when Danny arrived at Heathrow Airport, this was in the 50s, of course, 
um, a Lawrence Olivier thought he would make him very welcome to England by going to the airport, because it was a rustic little thing, you know, a one runway or something in those days, certainly no security whatsoever, except a friendly Bobby on the gate. And he persuaded the customs people and immigration to give him a uniform, and he stuck a bit of putty on his nose, which he was famous for doing, mm -hmm. and a moustache. And when Danny arrived, um, he was, Larry was waiting for him in customs. He said, excuse me, sir, would you mind coming this way, sir, uh, please, if you don't mind? And Danny came, goes, yeah, uh, me? Yes? Oh, yes. Um, is there anything wrong? Uh, this way, sir, please, the private room, if you don't mind. Uh, yes, sir, um... Uh, could you, would you mind taking a coat off, please? Uh, yes. He goes, well, what's the matter? You know, I'm, da you know who I am, right? I, I'm Danny Kay. I'm here to perform in front of the, Her Majesty the Queen at the London Palladium. And he goes, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, that'd be nice. But we have, we've got a tip about you. Could you mind, uh, taking your trousers off? He goes, what? <laughs> How this is outrageous. <laughs> I would like to speak to the American ambassador. Yes, sir, you'll, you'll be very... We'll put you through as soon as we've done this check, if you don't mind. Take your pants off, sir. Yeah, right. Take your underpants off as well now. Up on this table. Up on the table. And right in front of his face, he puts on these rubber gloves. He goes back, back to his back end. And he leans over. Danny Kay's like going, this is outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. Lawrence Olivia goes up to his ear and he goes, Welcome to London, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm, I hope you remember telling that story on the Joy Behar show some years ago. I, I did, and that's where I got a lot of flack. I was in the room. But who cares? Who cares? Get over it. That's one of those stories. I've heard it a few times, and depending on who, yeah, depending yeah. on who tells it, uh, in some versions, Olivier has his finger in Danny Kay's ass, and in yeah. other versions, Danny Kay has his finger in Olivier's ass. I think that was probably for the return journey. <laughs> On the subject of Olivier, Malcolm, you all, you also told that wonderful story when you guys were making the collection. You oh, and yeah. you and Olivier and Alan Bates, and you all went to the pub. Oh my which god! Which is a favorite of mine. Oh, uh, you want to hear that? Yeah, it's a great um, one. You yeah, were, we're Gilbert, in rehearsal. Gilbert doesn't we're know. We're in it. rehearsal. Alan Bates, who I adored as a friend, and he's a great actor. Terrific but, actor. You know, yeah, but you know, very self-obsessed, shall we say? You'd say, Alan, if you put on weight, what? Where, darling? Are you sure? Where? Have I got a double chin? Oh, no. Really? You think my behind? Am I my stomach? You think a little bit? Uh, you go, no, it's just a joke. Fuck's sake, take it easy. Didn't he wear a scarf um, or an ascot all the time? Because yeah, he was worried always, because he had a double, a double chin. He double, had a double chin, chin. yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, but he was so, he was so funny. He was such a nice man, you know, he's... One of the nicest people I ever met in show business. Anyway, so he was in awe of Olivier. Or in awe, going, Malcolm, you can't talk to Larry like that. Um, I go, why not? He's only, he's an actor, right? I mean, we're doing a scene together. It's 
What am I supposed to do? Get down on my knees? He goes, no, no, no. But I mean, you know, uh, I mean, oh, you're too, you're too reverent with the guy. So, of course, I was, you know, thought he was great. I mean, but I was more into Albert Finney. He was more, you know, he was one generation up, not two or three, mm-hmm. right? So we're rehearsing and we decide to go to the little local pub. This is on the south of the river in, on the Oval. And uh, we went into the small little snug bar and we had a pork pie or something. And there's three of us, myself, Alan, and his lordship, who's sitting there in a, in a, a raincoat, little raincoat. He, look, he looked a bit like, you know, Peter Cook in, uh, in that thing with Dudley Moore, you know, that thing they oh, used to do. Bedazzled? No, it was uh, oh, the sketch not where he was only, the to- the tar- but also. Oh, oh, right, where he was the one-legged you remember that? Yeah, he wore, he wore the no, raincoat. The, this is when they were sitting in the pub. <laughs> oh, I got gotcha. you. Hey, oh, you know, I was at Mally Booley Bum Bum, you know, and Jay Mansfield had lobsters, oh, lobsters. crawling yeah. up her arse. Derek, you know. <laughs> Derek yeah. and Clyde. Oh, yeah, remember that. Right. Yeah, Mally Booley Bum Bum, yeah. <laughs> um, That's right. Anyway. Um, Derek yeah, and Clive, he, they called Cook. themselves. Pete, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Peter Cook was was a comic genius. Brilliant. And you know, uh, the the Pythons are traced directly back mm-hmm. to him. Anyway, we're sitting there having a pie. A lorry driver, truck driver, whatever, walks in. And it's a tiny room, really. The fire's on. And he goes and orders a pint. And he look, and he's just waiting on his pint. He looks around and he goes, oh, Fucking hell! It's it's the old clockwork banana, isn't it? Oh come on! Oh yeah, <laughs> it is. It's him. He goes, oh for fuck's sake! Here, sign. Can you sign this? I said, sign what? It it goes here. The beer mat. Can you sign the beer mat? I went, yes, of course. Uh, I signed it, and then he goes, oh. And he notices Alan Bates. He goes, fucking hell, it's Tom Jones, isn't it? It's Tom Jones. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that made me guffaw because, of course, that was Albert Finney, Albert not Finney. it wasn't Alan Bates. Not even close. <laughs> he got the wrong actor. And, of course, that was a dagger to the heart of Alan's, you know, ego. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, oh, yes, do sign it, Albert. <laughs> and he went, shut up. And then there was like a pause, and I said, "Well, surely you want the autograph of the greatest ever living actor." And he goes, "Oh yeah, who's that?" I said, "Well, <laughs> this pointing to you know the guy in the little raincoat." I said, "This, this is Laurence Olivier." He goes, "Ah, no, no," and walked out. <laughs> And, of course, I thought it was quite amusing. Hilarious. And we all get up to leave. And Alan, as we're leaving, grabs hold of me and he goes, we are going to pay for that this afternoon. I went, what? He's an ignorant tosser. What do you expect? You don't think his lordship cares about that? He goes, oh, yeah. And he was right. He had scenes with Alan that and he was so bitchy to him. (laughs) The next morning... (laughs) I came in, you know, Alan's there drinking his tea. You know, I come in. He goes, oh, it was terrible with Larry. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the whole point, it was just four people in that play. 
the three of us and Helen Mirren. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of it is that um, it's a play, a Pinter play, Harold Pinter, and it's about menace. And the whole deal is that Lawrence Olivia is playing this sort of snobbish, rather aristocratic old man who lives in a beautiful house in Eaton Square. And he's got this visitor who lives with him who is this rather common rent boy, i.e. me. And it's sort of very deeply in the closet that there's any homosexual overtones. And Alan, his character, comes to the house and accuses me of having an affair with his wife, Helen Mirren. So it's this whole thing of menace. Anyway, we're all there for the read-through of this thing, and Olivier starts reading it like he's swinging a handbag in high heels. <laughs> and, I mean, we're like, we're going, oh, my God. I mean, uh, we have nowhere to go here. If you know he's gay, I mean, there's, there's no menace. There's no nothing. You know, it's over. So we're, like, looking at him. I look at Alan, who looks at his feet and uh, with a little smirk on his face. And, of course, every day in rehearsal, we'd say to the director, um, you know, uh, have you told Sir yet? You know, he can't, he can't play it like that, right? You're going to tell him, right? I mean, we're not going to go out. We're not going to do this with him like that. And so we go through the whole first week of rehearsals. And on the Friday, he said, he said he's going to tell him. So um, it had these swing doors, like a, like a, a restaurant doors, and uh, we, Alan and I went to the doors and just opened it. And all we could see was the back of Olivier with his ears. And, um, and the director was um, Michael just whispering. Michael Apted, yeah. who, was a, who did A Coal Miner's Daughter. He's one of yeah. the terrific films. director. Very good film. So Michael, who's a very calm and very patient guy, you know, is, sort of whispering in Larry's ear. And suddenly there's, he, Larry goes, but of course, dear boy, I always start big and bring it in. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, oh, thank God for that. <laughs> Jesus, why didn't we know that? And we go, yeah, he starts big and then he brings it in. And Alan, so we go back to the table, sitting down there in the green room, and he goes, you know, it's so brave, so brave of Larry to do that. And I went, yeah, it's very brave to make a complete idiot of yourself, and uh, I think it is brave. He goes, why don't we do it? Why don't we, you know, the younger act, why don't we? I went, play it gay? <laughs> he goes, yes, let's <laughs> do it. I mean, you've got to be fucking joking, right? He goes, no, I'm not. Let's do it. So they go, okay, let's go from the top. So the top was him ringing the doorbell and me opening the door and going, yes. And he goes, are you um, so-and-so? So, okay, action. Doorbell rings, open it. Yes. <laughs> That's the only word we got out. We just started laughing so hard. That was the end of that experiment. <laughs> Poor Michael Apted was like, oh, what God. the hell are you doing? Uh. 
<laughs> I know. I love uh, the Seven Up series that he did too. Michael Abt did. Oh, brilliant! Wonderful. I know. He's wonderful. a fantastic. Yeah, director. wonderful filmmaking. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. What's He's funny about Finney too is I, I love the um, I love the the the, uh, the gener- how the generations work that you were inspired in a way to be an actor by seeing Finney at, and and saying I I yes. can do that and then years later your friend yeah. Gary Oldman had the same experience watching you yeah yeah it's amazing isn't it it's a, it is sort did of, you tell uh, Finney that did you tell him at, at any point I did I I did you know and I, I it, it was difficult to talk to even though he produced if my first movie, and a lucky mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. Albert, his company, Memorial Enterprises, uh, produced it. He didn't really produce it, but his partner did, Michael Medwin, who was an actor as well. A very nice guy. But um, Albert uh, had been on a world tour when we were shooting If, 1968. I think he'd done Tom Jones and all the money was coming in. And he had to get out of England for a year so that he wouldn't have to pay tax. So he did a world trip. I mean, he went everywhere, Tahiti, you name it. Albert Finney, you know, from Salford near Manchester was doing his thing. Uh, anyway, um, he came to, he saw some of the dailies to if uh, that movie and came on the set towards the end of the shoot. And he came up to me, he said, hey, Malcolm, just like to tell you, you've got a very interesting face. I went, wow. Albert Finney said, I've got an interesting face. Wow. I mean, to me, it was like the greatest actor of them all. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, you know, he, after he'd done Tom Jones, it was a huge hit and everything, which, by the way, he didn't enjoy. He told me, he said, uh, after he saw Oh Lucky Man, he goes, you didn't enjoy playing that part, did you? I went, how did you know? Does it really look that? He goes, no. It, he goes, it's a reacting part. And reacting parts are never that giving to you because you're always reacting to what somebody else is doing. He goes, and I had the same thing in Tom Jones, and I never really enjoyed it either. I said, you're so right, you know. I was desperate to play any of the other parts. That's interesting. But, um, yeah. But, you know, great actors have to be great reactors, of course. And when you see the great ones, like Gary Cooper comes to mind instantly, but um, uh, he was a, such a great reactor and listener, you know. It was incredible. You have a great and, affection uh, for American movie actors. I know you love Cagney. I yeah. I do. Well, to me, that's the movies were Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I mean, British movies were like kind of cheesy B movies, you know, uh, or war movies. It's like John Lennon said, you know, the English army just won the war mm-hmm. or whatever, you know. Um, it was uh, that kind of stuff. Why do you think Cagney is the, is the greatest American film actor specifically? I think when Cagney's on the screen, whoever he's with, Bogey, any of them, um, Robinson, all of them, Mm -hmm. you never look at anyone else except him. He is dynamism personified. The way he moves, of course, he was a dancer. So he moves like, you know, 
It's extraordinary movement. And, you know, movies are about movement. Mm -hmm. And movement, the, the way you move in a part, is as important as what you say. And it's very often overlooked. But I was very conscious of that. And uh, so I always want... I, I didn't have a sort of limp or something like that. I'm not talking about that. It's sort of subtle, really, but... Um, it's just the way you move in terms of what you're feeling in, in the particular scene. And it really registers more sometimes with an audience than, you know, the dialogue. Well, he could do anything. He could do menace, obviously. And he, and he, yeah. could, he could sing and dance. And if you look at a movie like Wilder's yeah. One, Two, Three, he was great at comedy. Oh, he was just the greatest. And the, just the delivery mm -hmm. is so machine gun so fast. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know. Especially the, in that movie. Yeah, and and you just think, wow, how could he do that? I mean, I couldn't, I can't think that fast. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just lucky <laughs> if I learned the damn lines. Um, now, but, I, I I have to ask you something. It just popped into my head. Can you please do for us a James Cagney imitation? No, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> top of the world, Ma. Top of the world. No, I, I really can't. But everything that I do is in sort of homage to Jimmy Cagney. Wow. I mean, every damn thing that I do. Uh, it's not conscious, but if I hadn't seen Jimmy Cagney as a 14-year-old boy, uh, you know, I saw him. I, I can't even remember the movie. I, uh, it was, uh, you know, one of the gangster movies. Mm -hmm. I came out of the cinema and played him all the way home, you know, dancing, jumping up on a wall and, uh, you know, and just so infected, an infectious thing these movies were. And I, I always just looked. And I found out who it was and I went to see everything I could with him in it. I didn't care what it was. But, of course, I even played Bottom the Weaver in A Midsummer Night's Dream. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, and, you know, of course, his great performance in um, Yankee Doodle Dandy, you know, is incredible. I don't think and, he and it, ever gave a bad performance. I can't think of one. No. He was always 100%. And I'll tell you, I never met him. My ex-wife got to work with him. I went, that's not right. Oh, in Ragtime. I mean, how come? Yeah, Ragtime. Ragtime, I mean, yes. You... Mary's in Ragtime. I know. It's just, uh, uh, but, but, um, Anyway, I, I was thrilled that she did, at least. But but she never, I don't think she met him. She may have met him at some point, but she didn't have a scene with him. But uh, what was his great friend, Pat O'Connor? Pat O'Brien. Pat O'Brien. Yeah. I got a call, and it was Pat O'Brien. Now, I'm going back 40 years. I got this call. I was in uh, Outpost Drive in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. The phone goes, and I pick it up. And he goes, it's uh, Pat O'Brien here. I went, uh, sorry? Wh which Pat O'Brien? Uh, he goes, uh, yes, I'm a friend of Jimmy Cagney. And Malcolm, I just want to tell you how much he really appreciates what you've been saying about him in the press. And, uh, you know, he's seen you in A Clockwork Orange, which he didn't understand. But he thought you were fantastic in it, although he didn't like the movie much. 
And I went, no, 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 of course not. Of course he wouldn't like that movie, but, but oh, no, no. I mean, it's a weird movie. Um, he said, but, and he talked to me for 40 minutes. He said, um, he's very aware who you are. Wow. And I was blown away by that. Isn't that amazing? It is. I'm sorry you didn't actually get to meet the man. I know. So was I. So was I. Because I thought, well, um, and you know, I was a friend of Milos Foreman. Milos was a friend when they first got out of Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm. They came to London first. That was the stepping stone to New York. And we all used to hang with them. Lindsay Anderson, Carol Rice, Milos, Ivan Passa, another director. I think he just passed this away. Ivan? Van Passa, oh, he yeah. did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so did Milos, of course. Yeah, yeah. good Great filmmakers. Guys. Oh, you know the really, thing about Ragtime yeah. is, I mean, what is Cagney's eighty something? And and yeah, and in and in this few scenes he's in, what you say, oh. what you say holds true. You can't take your eyes off of him. No, well, he's he's just this when he's when you know when he's in front of the camera, the concentration is so intense that it does something to the eyes, the adrenaline. It's like my wife used to say to me, she used to come on the set, and she'd go, oh, my God, as soon as they say action, your eyes turn ice blue. I went, well, aren't they always? She goes, not like that. And it's the adrenaline, I think, and the concentration of what you're doing, and certainly with him is the prime example of it. Now, you said in an interview that you were happy that in your younger days, you got all the self-abuse out of the way. Yes, sort of. I wasn't, to be honest, Gilbert, I wasn't that young. I didn't have a, I didn't have a joint um, till sort of my late 30s. And then, you know, I found cocaine because we were told, oh, well... Cocaine is okay because it's not addicting. I went, oh, oh, well, that's good. Well, let's have that because I don't like pot. Sends me to sleep. And so I found cocaine. And I'll tell you, it's a total lie. It's very addicting. And um, I literally, I think, was only... uh, I only did it for a couple of years because uh, you either explode and die or you you have to clean up your act and thank god um you know mary uh helped me and said look you've you've got to get off this crap and um she was uh, ready to deliver our son and it was the sort of perfect time so mm-hmm. it was you know it was so much fun for a while and then it was torture and um, so I've been sober, I think, 37 years. Good for you. Yep. I got a couple. So of... let's have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Malcolm, I got a couple of quick questions from, for you from people you've worked with. Uh, oh, yeah? Alan Arkush. Oh, yes. Who, who was, on this, who was on this podcast, the director of Get Crazy. Please ask Malcolm how he prepared for the penis talking scene. In Get Crazy, I can't think of another actor in film history who was capable of such a moving phallic monologue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll, do, I'll try and make this quick. Reggie Wanker. Do we have time? 
Yeah. So I was sitting on a beach. I get this script. I get my agent calls and says, they want you to play this in this American comedy. I went, okay. I read it. And I thought, there's not one funny line in this thing. This is not a comedy. I mean, they call back. I said, he goes, did you read the script? I said, well, I did read it. And and your description is completely wrong. <laughs> I mean, it may be American, but it's not a comedy. It's not funny at all. So he said, well, yeah, they're calling it a comedy. They want you to do the, you know, the Reggie role. I went, yeah, okay, well, but they only want you for two weeks and they don't want to pay you. And I went, good, pass. You tell him, and I said, don't say I don't want to do it. Just say he wants the full film fee for the two weeks and won't take any less. Okay, <laughs> thank you. That's really a pass. Click. Two weeks go by. He calls back and he... I throw the script in the trash, by the way. <laughs> I get the call and he goes, they've decided to pay you. I went, who? You know, that comedy. That script that wasn't funny. He says, yes. <laughs> they, they <laughs> I said, I, I thought they'd already started shooting. He said, they had. They hired a rock and roll guy and they realized they got to get an actor. I went, oh, oh gee. well, I've thrown the script away. He goes, what? I'll send another script. This was a Friday. So they fired the guy, and they're shooting on me on Monday. So I said, well, I'm going to have to meet the director um, before I accept. We know we're on the same page here. So they came around to this house in Malibu I was renting on the Saturday. And so we're saying, um, I didn't say, I thought it was very unfunny or anything. I just kept that to myself. (laughs) But I said, well, okay. I will do it on one condition. And I saw them physically sort of retreat. And they went, what's that? And I get, I went, I get to sing my own songs. And they went, do you sing? I went, does Mick Jagger sing? (laughs) 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 And so um, it was, um, so I went straight in. So the, we went in, oh, I went in to shoot one day, then the next day recording. I had to go in and sing the songs to, you know, for mm-hmm. the playback. And I said, well, who wrote this song? I'm sorry, I'm going to need something better than this. I mean, let's get together with the writer. Let's come up with something ridiculous. I mean, come on, let's really go for it. This is Rod Stewart and Mick Jagger rolled into one. So they came, they came up with some fun stuff for me. But so... I never quite finished the script, you know. So I'm in makeup the first day, and they're making me up and everything, and there's a young actor sitting in the other chair who goes, it's such a pleasure to work with you, Mr. Miller. I went, please, Malcolm, no, thank you, I'm delighted. And he goes, and I've just got one question. And I said, oh, yes, what's that? And he said, how are you going to do the end scene? I said, excuse me? I'm just going to do it. That's how I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. He went, wow. And I went, whoa. So he left. I said to the makeup guy, do you have a script there? Could I have a little look? So I, I flipped to the end, and I see Reggie takes a big gulp of um, water by the side of the stage that's been spiked with LSD, 
goes into the bathroom and a voice says, Hello, Reggie. And he goes, who? What? Who's that? Hello, Reggie. It's your manager. And I had a whole scene with my manager, who was my penis. <laughs> I mean, it's the most... And I thought, holy God. Um, I suppose this is what they think is the comedy part. Because you are different, mate. Huh? Is that you, old cock? I didn't know you could talk. There's a lot you don't know about me. <laughs> There's a lot you've forgotten about yourself. I don't believe that. Well, come on, you got something to say, spit it out. You became a star, Reg. You forgot how to feel, mate. What about the agony I'm feeling now? I mean, a woman's hurt me, lad. Deep cut. Emotion, Reggie. Emotion. That's what made tonight's performance your best. Was I really that good? Like old times. And it can be that good from now on if you listen to me. It's the start of a new beginning. Well, shake on it, then. You've got my hand on it. Not that. Oh. Don't shake me so hard, <laughs> So, uh, it was sort of wild. But, um, Alan was sweet, you know, um... Yeah. And um, you guys got to work together again on Heroes years later. Yeah, yeah, uh, we did indeed. He's a good yeah. man, and, nice man. And tell us about your first meeting with Stanley Kubrick. Uh, when you you, you were Kub so young and naive, you thought you were going to meet Stanley Kramer. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I did. Um, uh, of course, I didn't say anything. I just said Stanley. Uh, I got a call direct, not from my agent, and. And he's, uh, I was working on this movie, this uh, thing called The Raging Moon that Paul McCartney was going to write the music of, which didn't. And we were shooting at Elstree, which is near Stanley's house. And I got a call, and it was Stanley who said, um, Malcolm, I, I know you're shooting at Elstree. Do you think you could come by in your lunch hour? I'd like to talk to you. I said, oh, of course. Uh, yes, uh, I'd be delighted. Um, so I went to see him and he took me into a tiny room and, um, in a big house. And I noticed that the things on the walls were all covered with big Turkish towels and, um, very odd dogs everywhere and uh, children running around. And we go into this small room and, uh, Literally, it was 45 minutes of small talk. So I looked at my watch and I said, you know, Stanley, I have to be getting back because I've got to get into makeup. I've got a big scene this afternoon. And he said, oh, I said, was there anything you wanted to talk to me about? And he said, well, uh, yeah, um, there's this book. Um, and, and, and it was obviously he was very reluctant to give me the title. And I said, well, what, what is the book? He goes, uh, well, have you ever heard of this book, uh, Clockwork Orange? I went, Clockwork Orange? No, no, I don't think I have. He goes, well, it's a big cult thing. I went, really? Well, it hasn't got to Notting Hill Gate yet, Then I haven't uh, heard of it. He goes, oh, yeah, well, um, look, I'd like you to read the book and call me. 
and he gave me his number. So I went back. I, I read the book. I struggled through it the first time. I found it very hard to read because it's all this weird language and you have to keep, you know, turning to the back of the of the uh, the book itself for the glossary and trying to figure out what the hell it's all about. And so it took me a few days, you know, and I thought, well, I better read it again. I was also doing another film, so it was, a, you know, hard to concentrate totally. But then I read it again and I and I suddenly realized oh, my God, this is incredible stuff. Anyway, I thought, you better read it one more time, which I did, and then I realized what an amazing part, what an amazing role it was. So I called him up after a week, and I said, uh, Stanley, hello, this is Malcolm. I just, I read the book, and now, I'm sorry I took so long, but I wanted to be sure to read it really and really take it out. He said, oh, yeah. I said, well, I think it's incredible. It's fantastic. Are you going to make it into a movie? He said, yes, I am. I said, oh, and are you offering me the part? There was a long pause, and he said, what? what? <laughs> yes. I went, oh, great. How lovely. Well, maybe we could meet. Would you mind coming into central London, and maybe we could talk about it? Not knowing, of course, he never left his house. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'll tell you why I said that. Because a really good friend of mine who I was at Stratford with at the Royal Shakespeare Company, great actor, Ian Holm. Ian, I bumped into Ian in, um, and this was, I think, a little bit later. But I think, no, I bumped into Ian and I said to him, oh, I'm going out to Stanley Kubrick's. Because uh, he'd asked me what I was doing. He said, I'm going to meet this man, um, Stanley Kubrick. And he went, uh, yes, he's not really a friend of mine. He didn't actually say that. He said some things, that Amer words that Americans don't like to hear. I went, really? Why do you say that, Ian? He goes, he had me out to this house and working on the pre-production of Napoleon for oh, 18 yes. months. Oh, yes. And suddenly there was dead silence. I couldn't get him on the phone, and he didn't even have the courtesy to call me and say I couldn't get the money. And so I went, wow, that's, that's shocking. What a terrible thing. So I was very aware of this. And so when I asked him if he was offering me the part, I had that thought in my mind of Ian Holm. And then when I was out at his house, I sort of blurted out, well, Ian Holm's not really a big fan of yours. You know, Stanley. He goes, oh, really? Uh, why? I go, well, you know, you, you gave him the old right dance, you know, for 18 months, and then you never even called him to say you couldn't get the money for it. And I went, you probably should have called him. And it was like, oh, silence. So I thought, oh, well, let's just leave that one where it lies. And that was that. Wow. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Speaking of Jagger, I saw an interview with you. Was, was Jagger attached to uh, or interested or swimming around uh, a Clockwork Orange for, for a bit? I heard, you know, I don't know how seriously, I don't think it was. 
Uh, I know the Stones love the book. Yeah. And I think Mick, you know, after he did um, Performance, yeah. which, which was a fantastic movie, and really caught the sort of debauchery of the sort of 60s and that whole kind of scene of, you know, the pop scene, rockers and the underbelly drugs and all that and the, the chicks and, you know, um, really caught the essence of that. No, wonderful actor called James Fox, you know. Yeah. Um, Mick was very, very good in it, actually. Uh, I basically, I guess, playing himself, you know. Although you never really play yourself. Was Kubrick reluctant to give you direction? There's a funny story that I saw you telling about where, where he would say, that's why I hired you when you would ask for Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'd say to him, well, I remember saying, you know, we're talking. I, I go out there, all, you know, I, I knew I was playing the part for nine months before we started shooting. And, you know, we'd talk about the mechanics. We'd talk about, the set or whatever. And then we'd talk about casting and I would, uh, you know, give him my two cents who I thought should, you know, he, he wouldn't cast Warren Clark as Dim for four months. Mm -hmm. Took me to, he just wouldn't cast him. And uh, then I'd have to read other actors. And I kept saying, it's Warren, what the hell? Um, but he wouldn't, you know, he was very stubborn about it. So, um, he now, so, you know, he never really talked to me about the part, the role. So at one point, you know, I was talking to him and I said, um, what do you really think about Alex, Danley? You know, and he looked at me and he goes, I don't know. Um, that's why I'm paying you. And walked off. <laughs> walked off. <laughs> I went, oh, Sorry. I thought you were the fucking director. <laughs> I love that story. Okay, we're going to stop right now. And we're just, we were just having so much fun with Malcolm McDowell that we made this into a two-parter. So come back for the next show. Absolutely. We couldn't even stop him because he just kept going. So there's too much material there. We'll, get, we'll see you guys next week for part two. 